So you may remember that we spent a bit of time in the book of 1 John, particularly 1 John chapter 4. And this is, as I said before, one thought. But the verse that we are focusing on is verse 19, and it is like a summary. And I tend to like summaries because ideally, a good summary tells you what a long discourse says in a very short, concise way. That's literally what a summary is by definition. And for those of us who work in jobs like mine, where we have to spend a lot of time listening to other people, you're grateful when somebody summarizes everything that's been said in two or three sentences, so you can just jot that down and feel like if you've attended the meeting. But I mean, if you've attended lectures or even listening to preaching here, you like when the entire text is just summarized for you. You're grateful. Because that's one of the benefits for people like me who have short memory spans or short attention spans sometimes. And the verse that attract, is going to attract our attention today serves a similar purpose. Verses 19 to 21 get to the point, as it were. What we read serves and functions like a summary. And that thought actually runs all the way from chapter to chapter 5 and verse 2. The summary of John's message about love is really that you cannot claim to love God and fail to love your brother. Loving God in the mind of John is central to Christianity. It is the Christian distinctive. It can be said, in a sense, that all of life for the Christian ought to be shaped by love for God. But John argues that you can't be identified as a Christian, or put another way, you can't claim to love God if you don't love others. That's the teaching of these three verses, from verse 19 to 21, and even down to chapter 5 and verse 2. But for our purposes today, I've chosen to divide up the text, so we'll only focus in on verse 19 today, which serves as a preface for what John is teaching primarily, which is that love for God has to be corroborated or verified by love for other brothers. So in approaching this text, I thought it might be helpful if we examine or really answer three questions. And those three questions are this, or these rather. The first is, who is the object of our love? The second is, why do we love? And the third is, how do we increase our love? So let's try and answer these who, why, and how questions as we go through this evening's sermon. And the first one we'll start with is, who is the object of our love? The text just plainly states that we Christians love. But it doesn't say the person or doesn't direct our attention to who is being referred to when it says we love. As we read in verse 19, it, it just says we love because he first loved us. So the question arises, who is John referring to or what is John referring to when he speaks about us loving? What is the object of our love? The flow of the text seems to support the idea that the intended reference here is God himself. And here's the reason I say so. In verse 20, the very next word, verse, small from verse 19, John immediately goes on to talk about people who claim to love God. It seems then that 
it is most likely John is focusing on those individuals within this context who are making claims about their love for God. And so it's as though he's saying in verse 19, yes, we Christians do love God because he loves us. But, and we go into this in verse 20, but just in case anyone comes and tells you that he loves God and he doesn't love his brother, that claim to love God is false. That's the sense of it. And so I think it's fitting that we interpret verse 19 to mean we love God because he first loved us. As I said before, we'll look more closely at verse 20 and following later. But for our purposes, it's sufficient to simply establish the fact that John prefaces his statements in verse 20 to, verse, to chapter 5 and verse 2 by providing us with a short summary statement that is true for all Christians. Christians love God. Notice that the text doesn't say that Christians have passing thoughts about God. It doesn't say that loving God is a Sunday thing or something like that. John assumes that this is an ongoing reality in the life of a Christian. Or to put it another way, this is just normal Christianity. This is just mere Christianity in the words of C.S. Lewis. Of course, as we've mentioned before, John is not assuming that you must have a perfect reflection of this reality in your life in order to be considered a Christian. But I do think what is in view is something similar to what we, we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 22. It says there, if anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. What John is saying is that all Christians love God. If you don't love God, you're not a Christian. That's, that's just the simple fact of this text. If you don't love God, you're not a Christian, because that's normal Christianity. John is kind of getting to the bottom of our relationship with God. It is one founded on love for the Lord. It isn't formalism, or put another way, it isn't because of the acts of service we do. He's talking about the disposition of every Christian heart towards God. The implication is straightforward that if you have no love for Christ, you don't fit within the contours of Christianity. It isn't that love is for the elites of Christianity. It isn't something you mature into. It's what John is saying is that every Christian experiences love for God. And I say these things which are objectively true, but hearing that love for God is normative in Christian life is like getting sucker punched by Mike Tyson. Because I hope everyone knows what sucker punch is. It's like getting punched when you don't know the person is punching. It's like getting punched from the back. So just imagine that and getting punched by the world heavyweight champion. So that's, that's the visual I want you to, to have. Hearing that this should be objectively true in the life of the Christian is like getting punched by Mike Tyson. Sucker punch. And it's really only after you get punched that you realize that there's something that you have to face. And in this case, the thing to be faced is the sad reality that too often we can't say that this is normative for us. Just as an example to kind of push the point a bit. It's kind of frightening how sparsely we use the word love to describe our relationship with God. We say things like, I honor the Lord, I respect the Lord, I hallow him, I worship him, I know him, but seldomly I love him is featured. 
Verses like these confront our fullness and drive us to understand. And perhaps one of the reasons that it hits us like a sucker punch is because we have so much reason to respond to God in love. And that's a natural segue to the second question to, add, to answer. Why is it that we love God? What is John getting at when he says, when he says, we love because he first loved us? I don't think any of us have to think very hard to get to the answer. Even the most casual reading of the text shows us that we love God because he's first shown his love to us. But we want to go a little further than this because it appears that John wrote this with the assumption that his original audience would understand a greater depth of what he means by this statement. I say that because there's a connection between God's love and our response to that love that he doesn't bother to explain. He just says God loves and we respond in love. But he doesn't bother to explain why or how. So. It may be helpful for us, given we are not in the first century setting, to kind of unfold what John means when he says that. I can say, certainly it isn't automatic that just because someone loves you, you love them back. Any, any teenager in the modern century knows that, that just because someone loves you doesn't mean that you love them back. So, what is it? How are we to understand what John means here? And more to the point, how does God's prior love for us cause us to respond in love for Him? Well, I think there must be at least two things in view here. The first is that God gives us the very ability to love. And the second is that He gives us the motivation to love. So let's look at these connected but distinct points. The first idea is that God gives us the very capacity or ability to love Him. Why do we love the Lord? Or put another way, what is meant by John when he says we love because he loved, loved us? The first answer is because in his love, he has caused us to love him. The, humble reality, the humbling reality is that we are unable within ourselves to love God. God's love is antecedent to our love. What that means is that it has to logically precede our love. Just like how combustion has to logically precede a fire. It has to logically precede our response of love to him. And the reason for this is because since the fall of man into sin, all of mankind has become corrupt and hostile towards God. We sometimes hear that, you know, everyone is looking to love God in their own way. The Muslims have their own way of doing it. The Hindus have their own way of doing it. The Baha'i. And you could list the other thousands of religions that exist. They all have their own way of trying to love God. There's this underlying assumption that people are out there seeking to love God. Perhaps in the best way that they can. But the uniform teaching of scripture is the exact opposite. Man in his sinful state isn't seeking to love God. If you are in Adam, your affections and your passions, your emotions are as dead and unresponsive to God's love as a corpse is to a vaccine. There is no response from a corpse to getting vaccinated. A corpse doesn't get a shot and suddenly get better. It stays dead. 
It doesn't matter how much medicine you pump in a corpse. It doesn't matter how much treatment you give to a corpse. It is staying dead. And that's how the human condition is in response to God. We are dead in our sins and as such, we do not respond to God's love as we are. And it's important to remember though, that loving God isn't so foreign to humanity that we can think of it as something that's impossible because of our biology. What I'm saying is that it isn't that God gave some people the right neurons in their brain in the right place so that they could love God. That it isn't that God made some people more loving or anything like that. That, that is not the case at all. We are dead in our sins and as a result, we do not love God. It is more similar to this. We do not love God because we don't want to in our sinfulness. We don't want to. That's the humbling and bitter truth. We are simply constrained by our own sinfulness, our own desires and our own will. To give an analogy which some of you experience this evening, in the same way that I, Jonathan, will never ever, ever prefer a sweeter drink to a diluted one. In that same way, a sinner will never ever ever prefer to love God over loving the world, loving his own self, loving other things. That's, that's the similar, that's a corresponding analogy. The sinful person, apart from the redeeming work of grace, will look at the options of loving God or not loving God and always prefer not loving God. Unbelievable. What this means is that it's no fault of God that you don't love Him. That's what it means. That's the plain teaching of the scripture. The reality is you do not love God or you cannot love God simply because you don't want to. The great evil of sin is really seen in that song, how sweet and awful is the place. The bondage of sin is so great and so restrictive that every human born in Adam would rather starve in the slums of the world than receive the invitation to eat at God's table. What I'm saying is that, as our brother Emmanuel said on his Facebook post, I'll never forget, Lil Naz, who claimed he wanted to be in hell, is not a wild deviation of the human heart. He's just giving expression more forcefully than what every sinner has in their heart, an opposition towards God. It's latent in every man born in heaven. But as we can see from the text, God rescues us from it. God has seen us in our sinfulness and has sent the suffering servant. God in his love deals with our incapability by first offering Jesus as an atoning sacrifice. But then in love, he not only justifies us, because justification is a, a legal transaction, he doesn't only justify us so that we have right standing before him, but more than fixing our guilt problem, he also transforms us by his spirit. He moves us from being a loveless people to a loving people. And this transformation is done in such a way that our previous resistance to loving him is changed. The lyrics of the song, And Can It Be, has a verse that speaks of the chains falling off and our heart being set free. Free from what? The constraints of our own slavery to sin. 
our own slavery to hostility towards God rather than love towards God. That previously hardened heart we had, which was unresponsive to God, is now at liberty to love Him. You understand that you would have literally never, ever loved God sincerely had it not been for the Spirit of God working upon your heart. That is the humbling reality that John is presenting us with. God's love, God's actions in transforming your heart are antecedent. They must be done before in order for you to love Him. We didn't make the first moves towards God. In fact, we were incapable of doing such a thing. God needed to love us first. It was this love that prompted the sending of His Son and the subsequent giving of the Spirit to change our hearts. That's the humbling reality. The Lord meets the demands of His own law first and then grants you the further grace to actually see and appreciate His work. That is the love of God towards you. It is clearly implied in our text that our response of love towards God is not prompted or initiated by anything in us. No good within us, no righteousness, no spirituality, no secret knowledge we had. It was all a result of God's prayer love that works itself out in bringing about the new birth. So why do we love God? We love because He has enabled us to love Him. That's the first part of, part of the response. But I think that may be an incomplete answer and perhaps doesn't fully capture what John is saying in the text. John is summarizing his teaching on the love of God, particularly demonstrated in and through Christ. And so his aim for us is to focus in on the nature of God's love for his people and how this love in turn provokes or motivates us to love God. Friends, I can tell you there's nothing more important in your life, and that's what John is saying here. There's nothing more important in your life than your own devotion towards God, your own love for Him. And while we get a sense of the nature of God's love by, by John's statement that He loved us first, while we can glean something of the chronology, I think there's a bit more being highlighted here. Of course, as we mentioned, God's love is antecedent to ours. It's necessary for us to love Him. But there's also something motivating about His love as well. And I chose to look at a passage that kind of unfolds that idea for us a bit, just to elaborate or give greater clarity to this point. Let's look at, let's look briefly at Luke chapter 5 and verse, verses 12 to 15. And what I want you to notice is how, what was done for this person and what ought to be his response. Let's turn there quickly. Luke chapter 5, verses 12 to 15. It reads like this. While he was in one of the cities, that is Jesus, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded for food to them. 
But now even more the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. I just want you to notice that in the passage, it was well known that this individual was a leper. Luke writes that he, had, he was full of leprosy. In other words, you couldn't miss that the man had leprosy. It was evident he was a leper. And if you recall, living in 2nd century Jerusalem wasn't exactly the most accommodating time to be considered a leper. Of course, as putting it nicely, the Levitical law required lepers to walk around with torn clothes, live in isolation, and cry out unclean, unclean, so long as they had the disease. I leave it up to your imagination to determine the level of ostracization that a leper would have experienced among sinful Jews at that time. But what I what I am trying to get at isn't that there's a there is a problem of becoming unclean. Sorry, let me let me restate that again. The level of, there is a problem of becoming unclean, but more than that, in an age where medicine was not as advanced as it is now, you can imagine the type of things people speculated about even coming in contact with the leper. But Jesus stoops down to this leper and touches him. He doesn't heal him from a distance. He stoops down and touches him. This guy who is full of leprosy, Jesus doesn't let his health condition affect his approach to him, but rather gives him the warmth of human contact that he probably hadn't felt in years or a long time. Can you imagine what that must have been like? Perhaps all your fellow men shunning you, perhaps the very persons in your own household not wanting to be around you because if they touch you, they're unclean too, and <laughs> have to go through the same level of isolation as you are. Your neighbors, everyone, but then Jesus comes around. The Lord's anointed, the one who actually gave the law at Sinai. He comes and welcomes you with such tenderness and compassion and heals you of your disease by touching you. What love Christ displays in stooping down to serve this man. It seems so obvious to us in this circumstance that this man should respond in love towards Christ. It's obvious, like, he just got a big break in life. Like, he's moving from a situation where he doesn't need to be ostracized anymore. He can be reintegrated into society. It's like if perhaps a power was given a million dollars, although that probably won't happen. But basically, he got a big break in life. He has something that he should respond to God a gratitude for. But they're saying God has done an even greater act of service to you. If we can see this act and be compelled by just how beautiful Jesus' love for this leper is, how much more the cleansing act of salvation which God has brought to us by him. Spiritually speaking, our sin makes us just like this leper, unsightly in the sight of the Christ holy God. Yet as ugly as our sin is in God's eyes, the Lord comes to us and says, Though your, skin, your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. As we see in this text in Luke, God has no problem approaching sinners. In fact, 
he approaches them, as he welcomes them, he moves towards them. As we look at Luke, do you see yourself spiritually speaking like this leper? That's my question to you. Do you see yourself like him? If so, how much more should you be moving in your inward man to respond in love towards Christ? The uniform witness of scripture can be considered the refrain of creation. Is that the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. For the Christian, that means in life and in death, God abides with his people, loving them and securing them under the everlasting arms. Saints, God not only enables our love, but motivates or provokes our love for him, having received the love from him in the first place. We love because he has demonstrated his love for us in Christ Jesus. Though we ought to be worthy of contempt because of our sins, he loves us anyway. So that, those are the first two questions. The, what is the object of our love and why do we love? We love because he enables us to love. We love because he motivates us to love. When we read passages like these and consider the love of Christ, we're motivated and stirred in our souls to love him. And the object of our love is God himself. But let's look briefly at this third and last question. How do we increase our love as a point of application? I think that the text actually implies the remedy for our problem. And I've kind of hinted toward, to, to it in the text already. We are motivated to respond in love towards God when we see the great acts of love that he has done for us. Brothers and sisters, I can only momentarily and very dimly show you the love of God, but there are 66 books that are available to you where you can place yourself in the way of a learner, like John Piper famously says. Many of us are loveless at times, but it is key to understand the very text prescribes the remedy for our wholeness. Our wholeness. Look to the cross. Look at God's love for you. Consider your own sinfulness, where you came from, as it were, spiritually speaking, like this leper. Consider the deadness and coldness of your own heart and the futility of the life you once lived. And by God's Spirit, pray that He moves you to love Him, to respond to Him in love or in greater acts of love. It's indeed a travesty that within the Reformed faith, with all its systematic understanding, we are often accused of having little experiential acquaintance with God's love. Let it not be said of us that our theology was so vast, that it was just so lucid, that we could plumb the depths of Scripture so deeply, but in terms of experiential acquaintance with the love of God, there's very little to show. Consider, dear saint, this passage even after the sermon and pause to consider the great love of God towards you. The passage itself prescribes its own medicine for how to stir our hearts. The solution certainly isn't to dwell on how cold our hearts are. We don't generate more love towards God by simply contemplating how much of a failure we are in terms of loving Him. That, that isn't the solution. Yes, it is necessary to acknowledge our sin, but 
Turn your eyes off of yourself and look towards Christ. Look to his grace and, his, and the tenderness of his love towards you. And prayerfully ask the Lord to shorten the gap between your head and your heart. The brevity of this verse should not detract from this important to us. In this short snippet, John shows us both the primacy and majesty of God's love so that we can be humbled and motivated to love God. Getting humbled and motivated don't usually go together. Usually, when we think of being humble, we think of being feeling defeated, like Ocha or embarrassed. But perhaps that's because we don't have a childlike understanding of being humble. Children often, when you do something and show them something, yeah, they might be embarrassed, but quickly they, they're up and feel stirred and motivated to do it. Perhaps in this, this is just another way we need to realize that we're like needy children before God. We need the Lord to enable us to love Him, and that's humbling. We also need to recognize that our affections and desires for the Lord can be stirred by embracing and inviting the works that He has done for us. It is doubtless that any of any look into the love of God will humble us. Any look into the love of God will humble you. Because you're not Romeo in the story. You're not the, the, the hero of the, the narrative of scripture. You're more like Peter, who if the Lord needed you in his hour of trial, you would most certainly fail. But God loves you anyway. God loves you for your sin. As we consider the scripture and passages that speak of God's love, let us go to the Lord recognizing our need of Him, but also striving to be moved by the great love that He has for us. The Lord is able to meet the conditions that He requires, friends, and He has made provision for us in the new covenant to have changed hearts and has given us His word and this great fellowship that we have as a means of grace to stir our hearts. So let's strive to set our, our love on God.